We're on a mission from God. Wendy? So I got that going. Darling? Looks like I picked the wrong week to quit sniffing blue. Light of my life. We enjoy your films. I am a human being. I thought they smelled bad on the outside. Welcome to Vintage Video, where we're rewatching the 80s so you don't have to. We'll be reviewing every major film release of the 1980s in real time, overanalyzing what you've seen and spoiling what you haven't. I'm Patrick O'Reilly. I'm Jesse Bayless. And I'm Roger Wells. And today marks the 40th anniversary of the release of the fiendish plot of Dr. Fu Manchu on August 8th, 1980. It was written by Rudy Doctor Man, which is the weirdest superhero <laughs> name. Wait, I've wait, wait. Heard. How do we spell Doctor Man? D O C H T O R. M-A-N-N. So it's probably Doctorman? Like okay. Spider-Man? Or Spachemin? <laughs> yeah. Dr. Spaceman? Dr. Spaceman. Um, uh, he, he wrote it with other people. Uh, it was written by Rudy Doctorman and Jim Maloney, and then Peter Sellers uncredited, based on the novel by Sax Romer, and directed by Pierce Haggard, who was credited, and Richard Quine, who was not credited. Okay, wait. So it's based on a novel. Based on a novel. Is it based... Is, Characters from a novel series. So th- there's a series of novels yes. because there's a we'll series of movies. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Just checking. Um, but it was directed by Pierce Haggard, who got the credit, and Richard Quine, who did not get the credit, and John G. Avildsen, who did not get the credit, and David Lodge, who did not get the credit. I think they are probably okay with all this. And Peter Sellers, who did not get the credit. <laughs> and released by Orion. Somewhere in the 19 aughts, author Sax Romer birth name Arthur Henry Ward, sat down with a Ouija board and asked what he should write about to make his fortune. The board spelled out the word Chinaman, thereby relieving Romer of any responsibility for the racist undertones of his entire body of work. (laughs) This isn't the guy who built the railroads. It's just a racist ghost. It wasn't me. (laughs) We're talking about the people who built the railroads. Also, dude, Chinaman is not the preferred nomenclature. Asian American, please. From October of 1912 to June 1913, Roman issued the first Fu Manchu novel as a serial. In total, the Fu Manchu series spans 25 novels about Fu Manchu and Nayland's escapades. The first film adaptation of a Fu Manchu story, The Mystery of Dr. Fu Manchu, hit British theaters in 1923. Movies were a little different in the 20s, so actor Harry Lyons played Fu Manchu in 15 feature films that year (laughs) and another eight the following year. None was longer than 20 minutes, but for some reason they were still called feature films at the time. The first American adaptation, The Mysterious Dr. Fu Manchu, was released by Paramount in 1929 and starred Warner Oland, his first of four Manchu movies, who would later find fame on the opposite end of the acting spectrum for his portrayal of Charlie Chan. Oh, wait, that's the same thing, but with a good guy. Wait, it was the same guy as Charlie Chan? Yeah, he played Charlie Chan also. I mean, he's not the only person. Sidney Toller played him for a while, and other people took the role over, but that's what he's most famous for, Oland. In his last turn as the character in Murder Will Out, Manchu faced off against Sherlock Holmes and Philo Vance, a famous American detective character of the same time. Sounds like a Star Trek holodeck episode. (laughs) Yeah, basically. In 1932, Boris Karloff assumed the role opposite Myrna Loy for MGM's The Mask of Fu Manchu, which even at the time was considered horrendously racist and suppressed for many years before making its way to DVD uncut finally. Finally. Yeah. Thank (laughs) Thank God. God. (laughs) The character was parodied for the first time in 1946's unauthorized Spanish spoof, El Otro Fu Manchu, the other Fu Manchu. (laughs) But aside from that, the character was largely forgotten until producer Harry Allen Towers rebooted the franchise in 1965 with Christopher Lee in the Fu Manchu role. Oh, God. And made a sequel every year for the rest of the 60s, all starring Lee. This spoof film was the last authorized appearance of the character on film, but the character obviously served as an inspiration for characters like Charlie Chan, Sumeru, Marvel Comics' The Mandarin indirectly, and then more directly, a character literally just named Fu Manchu that was later renamed for legal reasons, obviously, to Zhang Zhu, who was actually the father of Shang-Chi, which is the one that's getting adapted as a new character for the MCU as we speak. Okay. Um, I would also include Christopher Lee's reprisal of the character of Sender from the Stupids. <laughs> as very, a Fu Manchu type w- character? Which very much seems like a Fu Manchu with yes. the drive B. 
Uh, but Marvel wasn't the only one adapting the character to comics because he also had his own series of DC comics based on the early features and serials. Fu Manchu even makes an appearance in Alan Moore's League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, where he's referred to only as the Doctor. In 2000, Lionsgate was working to reboot the franchise with Antonio Banderas as an FBI agent trying to track him down, but an escalating budget doomed it to development hell. I don't understand why they picked this up in 1980, let alone in the 2000s. There's no room for this to exist in the current market other than as a spoof at this point. I mean, what what was it? By the time it hit the 1960s, you said they were already very aware that this was taboo. Yes. So why would you ever have rebooted this? I don't know. To date, the most recent portrayal of Fu Manchu was in Rob Zombie's Grindhouse trailer for Werewolf Women of the SS, in which the part was played by none other than the great Nicolas Cage. (laughs) In 1975, Daily Variety reported that producer Zev Braun was in talks with Donald Sutherland and Peter Boyle to appear in a film at the time called simply Fu Manchu. And the next year, Robert Kaufman was writing a script for it, which was intended to star Peter Sellers and Michael Caine as the detective character. Directors Richard Quine and John G. Avildsen were both fired from the project before a script was even completed. Sellers experienced health problems, including a heart attack on set, which repeatedly delayed production. Sellers was ultimately disappointed with his performance as Fu Manchu here, which I'm not sure is fair because I would say the Nayland performance was just as bad. Uh, they were. They're both weird. They're both very tired. Yeah. Well, it's, something that I noticed throughout was I felt like he just dropped his character. Yeah, and he also pauses constantly in the middle of his lines or like repeats words. Yeah, but he like he starts off strong in some scenes, and then he just is himself. He's not the character anymore. Right. But Sellers did pass away from a heart attack uh, the day that The Earthling came out. Uh, He was not shot in Warrenbungle National Park, as earlier reported. (laughs) And so, as a final mercy, he did not live to see the film released. I don't know why he'd want to have done this film. I think he just wanted to prove that he could keep working, and this is what people were offering him at the time. I guess. He was advised by doctors not to take this part. And he was like, Not just for medical reasons. (laughs) They read the script. (laughs) (laughs) That's good. The script was not up to Sellers' standards, so he took it to Hollywood to rewrite it himself, and when he came back, it was a mess, so the producers brought on Pierce Haggard to fix it. He quarreled nonstop with Sellers until Sellers officially petitioned for his firing and took the director's chair himself. But he did bring on David Lodge to direct a few sequences uncredited. But again, the only person with a credit is Haggard. Nobody else got anything. But that's weird that he took it, Peter Sellers took over... And then didn't he didn't get any credit for it, but he wanted it to be his version. Like, why wouldn't you then fight for this guy's name to be struck and then yours put on there? And why, as the original director, would you want your name attached right? to this? I think by the end of this movie, he wasn't going to fight to put his name on it. That's why. I would have fought to have my name off of it. Right. <laughs> if I was the director who was yeah. fired. Maybe Haggard had nothing to do with it. And he was just like, you know what? Put Haggard's name on this. I hate that guy. Oh, yeah. I don't like this movie. Put that guy's name on it. (laughs) We start the film with a small piece of classical organ music, specifically Bach's Toccata and Fugue in D minor, which for whatever reason I've always attributed to Dracula specifically, though my research suggests that it's simply a horror trope originally used in a Jekyll and Hyde film and later in the Phantom of the Opera. Oh, I thought that was original to the fan of the opera. I did not know that. We hear this music over footage of the frosted peaks of the Himalayas as we approach the palace of Dr. Fu Manchu. Inside, we find an enormous three-tiered birthday cake with presumably 168 candles around it and 40 or so party attendants, each of whom begin a rendition of Happy Birthday to Fu. Happy Birthday to Fu. Happy as we reveal in a spotlight that Fu Manchu himself has been playing the organ during this entire introduction. Fu Manchu, it should be noted, is in fact Peter Sellers in Yellowface for the third time in a decade after Undercover's Hero in 1974 and Murder by Death in 1976. I would say the middle one is the most acceptable of the three. Uh, well, but he's playing a Charlie Chan character. In yeah, but at least Murder by Death is full parody, and so mm-hmm. it's intending to parody, you know, Yellowface, not... right. Be it. I think this was supposed to be parody too. Oh, 
Oh, they didn't do parody. I don't think they did either. Fu Manchu credits his longevity to his elixir vitae, and an assistant walks in with it on a silver platter, but accidentally lights his sleeve on fire with the cake candles and drops the tray, and then dumps the vitae all over his arm to extinguish the flame. I thought that was really kind of a ridiculous thing. I'm like, if you're going to light the guy's arm on fire, just have him drop the bottle. It doesn't have to pour it on yeah. his arm. Uh, I, I thought it was funnier that he took this all-important yeah. thing. and That he didn't actually drop it, and he still had it to do that Successfully way. grabbed it and yeah. then mm-hmm. poured it out. The assistant is sentenced to torture, live burial in a red anthill, and the removal of his left ear. Fu Manchu explains to his army that they have six months now to collect the most closely guarded ingredients in the world to concoct a new elixir vitae. They will be splitting up and headed to London and Washington tonight. The only super meta joke happens right here, but the rest of the movie doesn't really use them. I guess there's one more later, but here he says, I must think of a good title. And then the title comes up. Yeah, there, there was another bit that comes up later. Yeah, the I... transition shot. Uh, uh, well, we'll get to it. Okay. We'll get to it. And the title comes up and Fu says, Yes, that would do very nicely. It hadn't occurred to me before this film, but the character of Lopan is likely based on Fu Manchu. Mm. Because that whole movie is about him getting to the end of another life cycle and needing this curative ceremony to take place to make him young again. Is that the general story of Fu Manchu? I mean, I haven't seen any of the other versions of it. I haven't either, but I, I do think that part of the part of the legend is is that he's sort of immortal. Okay. A Ra's al Ghul kind of yeah. manner? So that, yeah. is, that is probably a, a running story thread. Yeah. Okay. Uh, we see a montage of Fu Manchu's army training by firelight under the opening credits. In the titles, I noticed executive producer Hugh M. Hefner in association with Playboy Productions Incorporated, which means that so far on our podcast, we have covered two Helen Mirren movies, one produced by Bob Guccione and Penthouse and one by Hugh Hefner and Playboy. She needs a better agent. Uh, we cut to Washington, D.C., possibly around 1933. According to the title, aerial footage is clearly much later than 1933. Uh, we move inside a museum exhibit about Leningrad workers, and a woman with a thick Russian accent walks a tour group through examples of modern-day Russian appliances. We notice one person in the group is not wearing shoes, because that's too complicated of a disguise, I guess. Yeah. She leads the group to the Star of Leningrad Diamond, one half of a pair of canary diamonds owned by cousins Tsar Nikolai and King George V of England. The diamonds are identical in every way. We cut to After Hours, and one of Fu's men, the Barefoot Man, emerges from an appliance in the exhibition and sets down a small cage with a tarantula in it. He lifts it out, and it twitches mechanically until the henchman puts a key into it to wind it up. So why did we have it in a cage? Is why that, is, is that there a, a tarantula at all? Yeah, and because this whole situation is totally ineffective because I don't get what it's supposed to do. I have a theory. Uh, he taps it to get it started, and the tarantula comically spins in a half circle before crashing into a wall. He gets it moving again, and it just crashes repeatedly into the display case for the Star of Leningrad. So he picks it up and puts it on a fishing line to lower it into the inexplicably open top of the case where the diamond is being held. It grasps the diamond in its fangs, but there's no reason for the tarantula at all unless it was intended to be a real tarantula, and they thought the prop looked so fake that the joke mm-hmm. would be that it's a bad mechanical tarantula. Oh, that's, maybe. That's all I could come up with for why this was here. Oh, and like it was supposed to like actually grab, grab the it. diamond with its legs and it was supposed to come down on its web. Yeah. That would make at least a little bit of sense. Yeah. It does look terrible. But they also didn't do anything like I thought. Maybe they were going to scare a guard off with it, and that didn't happen. And it also doesn't really make sense because they tried to wrap it back into the story later by saying Fu Manchu is, like, really skilled at making mechanical things. But this one's terrible. This is terrible, and it's obviously terrible. But the only service that, that it provides is literally just a hanging and grasping mechanism. That's all it does, which you could make very simply without needing to employ remote control or yeah. the the exterior of a spider for I no mean, reason. I mean, maybe they just thought that the absurdity of it all made it funny, but it just doesn't make sense. So it, it stops you from being able to laugh at it because you're like, why are you doing this? Yeah. Uh, the other dumb plot device here is leaving a calling card at the scene of the crime, needlessly tying together a series of crimes that should have been discreet collection of ingredients. Were the wet bandits. Yeah. <laughs> 
London, also possibly around 1933, Giuseppe Capone and Pete Williams from the FBI are visiting Commissioner Avery and his assistant and nephew, Detective Inspector Townsend. Robert Townsend, which was confusing to me every yeah. time they said <laughs> Yes. Capone warns Pete that they will be offered tea repeatedly. This joke goes nowhere. Yep. J. Edgar Hoover needs the yard's help to identify this calling card. Avery offers them tea and recognizes it immediately as the sign of the Psy fan. Avery recommends they meet with Nayland Smith, but unfortunately he was captured by the Psy fan and has never been the same since. He's retired now. At Nayland Smith's home, he is mowing the lawn with the sprinklers running under an umbrella. He's under an umbrella, not the sprinklers. That doesn't make sense. The FBI guys ride a tandem bike, and the Scotland Yard guys take a horse and carriage up to the house. Nayland seems very excited to see Avery when they arrive, but he seems a little out of it. He taps the lawnmower and says, This lawnmower is of more use to me than you could ever imagine. It's become something of a friend. Avery introduces the FBI men, which reminds Nayland of J. Edgar Hoover, understandably, who he helped once in San Francisco, which reminds him of the song San Francisco from the movie San Francisco, starring Clark Gable, Jeanette McDonald, and Spencer Tracy. The four men around Nayland share uncomfortable glances with each other, like he's totally off his rocker, but Nayland's tangent isn't rambling enough to warrant this. In the real world, they probably would have just said, oh yeah, I like that song, and then told him their business here. If there is any explanation for their confused looks, it might be that the movie San Francisco wouldn't come out for three more years, <laughs> and the performance he was praising had yet to exist. I did consider that the title's reading probably 1933 was a loophole to get around this anachronism, but it turns out that Queen Mary abdicated the throne with the passing of her husband in January of 1936, and the film San Francisco wouldn't premiere for another five months. So unless Nayland worked on the set, there's no way he would have known that performance <laughs> while Mary was still queen. But maybe he did. I don't know. You did far too much research into this dumb joke. <laughs> <laughs> they follow him as he continues mowing the lawn and eventually show him the calling card when he suggests they move inside. All of the physical comedy that he's doing is so subtle that it barely qualifies as a joke most of the time. And when they're trying to make him seem befuddled and confused, it's never so confused that mm -hmm. it's weird or comical. And and then this is kind of the end of that befuddlement yeah. because otherwise he's pretty on the ball. Mm -hmm. He's like a little slow in his manner of speaking, but he's always got a good idea and knows what he needs to do. And he's ahead of everybody else. I think it's supposed to be funny that they're in the yard with the sprinklers even. But they, no, nobody gets noticeably wet, so it's just not funny. Well, the one guy does. When well, he's yeah. wa walking in, he gets shot in the crotch with a sprinkler. Which, which never comes, yeah. like, no one, like, calls attention, like, going, well, oh, So please. many of these things never come back. Like, yeah. I was waiting for the entire movie to wrap up the thread of the lawnmower. Like, why is this lawnmower so important to him? Like, I figured it was some sort of, it had something to do with his last experience with Fu Manchu, and they never come back to it. I don't know if it's, like something from the books or something from the previous films. But to to introduce that and be like, wouldn't it be funny if he was obsessed with a lawnmower? And it's like, no. <laughs> but you can do that if you want. It's funnier to say it that way. <laughs> I guess. <laughs> On the way into the cottage, William stops so a sprinkler can spray his crotch and just stands there holding his crotch for a minute so that the camera can tell what's happening. He knows it's happening the whole time. He's not like surprised by it or notices it after it started but he chooses not to move away in favor of being bewildered by the physics of water and sprinklers. Nayland offers them tea inside, and the Americans roll their eyes like, geez, that's twice now in a couple days we've been offered tea by British people. <laughs> Nayland inspects photos of the crime scene for a moment and determines that the diamond was definitely stolen by a complex mechanical spider. Unless they left the spider behind, I'm not sure how he came to this conclusion. He concludes further that only the insidious Dr. Fu Manchu could develop a spider so complicated as to combine both a dangling and pinching function. To support this argument, he produces an exact replica of the spider he collected during an earlier encounter with Fu Manchu. This fellow followed me 500 miles up the Nile, till eventually I cornered it in a pyramid. Now, this joke would go basically the same way if he had a, an actual tarantula pet, right? Mm -hmm. So, assuming that they were supposed to look real... Maybe the joke is that they have trained spiders and that he captured a trained spider and kept it as a pet and then they smash it here in this scene. 
Hmm. Or yeah. maybe I'm just grasping at straws. But he sets it on the floor Anything and gives it a shove. Anything to try to make this movie feel yeah. better. Uh, the, the spider crawls across the floor towards the visiting detectives when Williams enters with a sufficiently moistened crotch and stomps on the spider in terror. Sufficiently? What justifies a sufficiently moistened crotch? <laughs> ask him. Uh, <laughs> Nayland instructs his butler Perkins to sweep up the spider. Perkins. Sweep that up, will you? I'll uh, repair it later. Keep a sharp lookout for any small screws. Yes, of course. Thank you. Nayland assures him that it's possible that Fu Manchu is alive at 168 years old, and Nayland tells them about the elixir vitae. He also says he was going to fix the spider later. Yeah. Like, it has been smashed to bits. Yeah. I get it that you're looking out for loose screws, but, but like... Perkins is very careful when he's collecting all the pieces and sweeping them up. But he, he, this is when he introduces the idea that Fu Manchu is like some sort of genius. And they're, I mean, they're trying to, they to reinforce are, that. But yeah, it, okay, so he's supposed to also be a yeah, genius? Yeah, they're, they're, they're yeah. equals. All right. Nyland tells them about the elixir vitae. He was there the last time Fu stole ingredients for it. There were three apparently unconnected robberies. The Imperial Japanese diamond disappeared. The Yeti mummy went absent from the Zagreb Museum and the Balkan region diamond vanished without a trace, which is how they should have done it this time. Yeah. Not connecting the crimes uh, intentionally, but the detectives invite Nalen to investigate with them in London. A group of Fu Manchu's men carry a crate like pallbearers into the British Museum when they are stopped by museum guards. They explain that there's a mummy in the box and present the requisite authorization papers and are directed to the Egyptian room. The next day, the newspaper headline announces a mummy was stolen from the museum, of course. They were bringing an empty box to smuggle a mummy out. Another siphon card is found at the British Museum. So we've connected the first stolen diamond and this mummy. I, I'm not clear why they're stealing the mummy. Well, that's I what... we get to that's it what, But that's what went missing last time. It's right, one of the yeah. three ingredients. Right, but we he only they only talk about the diamonds. Yeah. Um, I, guess, the I guess they need some other thing from one of these mummies i'm yeah. assuming some kind of dried up something who knows you know there's a there's a color of paint called mummy brown that they actually use ground up mummies to make the paint it's a real thing yeah yeah <laughs> they just use they also mummies. had candied mummies that you could eat no my god this is an outrage i was going to eat that mummy <laughs> sounds like a thing right the Vitae recipe calls for the exact weight of the twin diamonds, so the next ingredient to be stolen is likely the George V diamond in the Tower of London. They head here to give security a heads up, and in the background we see an elderly guard nearly falling asleep at his post. Not totally clear, but it may have played some part in inspiring a scene from the Minions movie where they try to steal the crown from the tower and face off against the blind elderly keeper of the crown. Fu Manchu sits through a test of a revitalizing electric chair. Ishmael, connect the wires. It seems to have some temporary effect. Nayland announces that rather than steal the diamond, Fu Manchu will probably hold a royal hostage for it. He suggests employing doubles. Not doubles, decoys, bait. They hold auditions. Exclusively constables are trying out to play the queen. Constable Alice Rage takes the stage with a saxophone after a girl on a unicycle gets booted. She moves on to perform a song and tap dance to the good ship Lollipop. On the good ship Lollipop, it's a sweet trip to a candy shop where bonbons play on the sunny beach of Peppermint Bay. Not clear if they have any idea that they'll be doubling the queen. Well, I think the whole thing is like, we need to hold auditions right and then it just cut. The joke is that they're ha having talent auditions. Yeah. Well, they can't. They obviously can't say you're going to be doubling for the queen because then right. everyone knows. But you think they would be like acting in Victorian garb right. or yeah. something, something along the lines of acting elegant. Yeah. But it's literally just what is it's America's Got Talent. Yeah. Kind of thing. I want to know if she's supposed to be doing a good performance because it's not good. <laughs> I don't think it is either. Actually, uh, Nayland reads an article about a planned appearance by the queen at the botanical gardens for the presentation of a rare plant and we cut to fu manchu who's teaching his henchmen about a plant he's acquired that exhales tranquilizing spores the next day during the the queen's speech but it's the double exhales and knocks out everyone on the stage while she's addressing the public 
Nayland is there in time to handcuff the double to the handrail before she can be stolen by Fu's henchmen. The good guys are also passing out when Capone just starts firing a gun at the plant to kill it. <laughs> yeah. Which actually seems to make the problem worse because more gas is yeah. escaping this plant. Once everyone's down, the henchmen quickly find that the queen is locked in place and turned to leave empty-handed. Despite the attempt on the queen's life today, the king phones the detectives directly to demand that they stop using doubles because they want to see a play later this week. Constable Rage is brought in and half-fired. She won't need to double the queen anymore, but she might still need to double the queen. We move to the theater opening where Nayland and others are locating several potential assassins in the crowd from their box. As people stand to honor the king and queen, multiple doubles appear in the king and queen's box, and we cut to Fu Manchu dressing down a row of disheveled assassins. Unclear well, exactly They're not what actually assassins, because they're trying to kidnap the, right. Right, but the royals. They're not assassinating I, them. I don't get what happened between the last scene and this scene. Well, they they saw that there were they couldn't figure out which one was the real king and queen, so they abandoned. But they all look beat up when they get back to Fu Manchu. Yes, I imagine the that he beat them up. He did it. Okay, yeah, maybe like, like that. That for their failure, they were roughed up. But it seems like they're introducing him to the idea that they failed when they come in. Ah, and then true. he says, "This is good news," and they're like, "Why is this good news?" And he says, "Because I can't take any more bad news," or mm-hmm. something like that. So I, I'm not clear what they're implying. Well, so this is where I get the one of the meta jokes for me. Oh, okay. When after like he says like I'll, you know, I'll start paying you in order to find you in order to, to find you for your punishment. Yeah. And then he sits there and goes, "Well, on to the next bit." <laughs> okay. Like a Monty Python. That's enough of that sketch. Yeah. It's silly. On to the next sketch. Yeah. In the night, the lawnmower Nayland's been lugging around this entire time is stolen from his room, and replaced with a calling card again. I don't know why they do this. Um, I think that this happens because they needed a reason for Peter Sellers not to be in a bunch of scenes. Oh, yeah. He had a heart attack during the movie, Mm -hmm. and he was gone for a while. That makes sense. Fu Manchu sits near Delight the lawnmower and calls for his henchmen, who appear instantly in a jump cut, and he says, You can't fool me with cheap cinematic tricks, which is another meta joke. The next day, Fu's men kidnap a man named Charles Rotten, a lifelong friend of the Queen, and replace him with Fu in disguise. Fu is passing out at Rotten's desk until his men plug his fingers into light sockets and flip the switch to jolt him awake. There is no sound effect in this scene. Yeah. It's really, really bothersome. Wouldn't there be? There's well, sound effects no, every other time they the, electrocute in, in a cheesy way, yes. Okay. You have to have, you know, if you want it to be a comical electrocution, you make a zapping sound. But and- if you want it to look like <laughs> Fu Manchu playing a funny prank... You just have him put his fingers in the sockets and go, blah, 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 blah. and that's what and happened. And that's what happened. <laughs> like, 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 like Alan Grant on the fence. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Constable Rage enters as the queen again and gives herself away by not recognizing Fu as an imposter. While Fu slash Rotten gives her a tour, she notices a rug approaching her from across the room and evidently <laughs> thinks nothing of it. Later, it's thrown over her head just as the detectives arrive outside and she's whisked away to Fu Manchu's compound. He walks through a tunnel built from Tesla coils to recharge himself again. Unraveled, the Queen's double complains that she might have suffocated rolled up in that rug and Fu Manchu says, Fear nothing, Your Majesty. You would not have suffocated. There are several large moth holes in that carpet you are safe in my care dr fu manchu removes his disguise and introduces himself properly this is where we learn that his doctorate is in veterinary medicine from the university of indiana (laughs) (laughs) he's also uh dds yes (laughs) Uh, in response she introduces herself accurately and announces that they are all under arrest at first he seems furious but then enchanted by her beauty and immediately offers her a vintage wine Fu Manchu invites her to address him with the less formal Fred, which is what he was called at Eaton. He later elaborates that he just ran their laundry at Eaton, in keeping with a lot of other racist jokes that I've been mercifully glossing over in this abridged scene-by-scene analysis. (laughs) Fred Fu Manchu is actually a reference to a 1955 episode of The Goon Show called The Terrible Revenge of Fred Fu Manchu, which also starred Sellers in a small role. Thankfully, Sellers has completely dropped the Chinese accent for this scene, and I'm not sure what he's doing now, but it's less painful to listen to. Fred asks what she'd rather be doing than being a constable, and when she says she dreams of performing in musicals, 
a dream Fred evidently shares, they launch into a piano performance of Joseph Tabrar's Daddy Wouldn't Buy Me a Bow Wow in B-flat. That's an actual song? Yes. I just thought they made that up. Nope. <laughs> That's a real thing. <laughs> Daddy wouldn't buy me a bow wow. Daddy wouldn't buy me a bow wow. I've got a little cat and I'm very fond of that. But I'd rather have a bow wow wow. Uh, they seem genuinely taken with each other by the song's end. A messenger arrives to announce that the man who guards the crown jewels, not the elderly one, but the the fat one that's the boss of the elderly one, is eating here in Fred's attached Chinese restaurant. Constable Rage is gifted a platinum saxophone and plays a small piece beautifully. Fred is immediately proposing marriage to her. He asks her to play more and she says, I can't keep playing in this disguise. Do you have somewhere I could take it off? The guard of the crown jewels is seen at home looking very uncomfortable. A doctor blames his addiction to Chinese food and prescribes him a regimen of stilt walking? Is that a thing that anyone would ever say? Like, oh, you got a bad heart and you eat too much no. monosodium glutamate. Maybe walk on stilts all day. It's how you try to make a joke by making something absurd, even though it doesn't make any sense. Yeah. But he walks on stilts through the park and by chance stumbles across an enormous buffet of Chinese food being prepared by Fred's men. Constable Rage introduces herself as the Lady Warrington Minge, and starts waving all the food in his face. She offers to introduce him to the finest Chinese caterer in the world, Mr. Fu, and Fu offers the guard his way with the buffet in exchange for a look at the King George V diamond. Not, he doesn't even want to take it, he just wants to see it. The guard takes them down to the tower to see the diamond, and the, of course the crown jewels are stolen, and the delight lawnmower is returned the next day. So I don't know if it's like, they took the lawnmower because they were like, hey, turn a blind eye to what we're doing in the Tower of London for a day and we'll give you this lawnmower back. Because otherwise he could have prevented the theft. Or I guess maybe to make him so distraught yeah. that he couldn't perform. Oh, maybe. Yeah, he was just crippled from being his normal genius detective self. Otherwise, you know, he's very happy to get Delight back. and uh, He's delighted. He's delighted to see Delight again. <laughs> and it seems like it's all in one piece, you know, unscathed. While the detectives shout at each other about who's to blame, we see that Nayland actually has the diamond hidden away. Fu must have taken a duplicate. And suddenly Fu calls to take credit for all the robberies and announce to Nayland that not only does he have all the ingredients to his vitae, but he suddenly expresses an intention to take over the world, which has not been a part of this so far. Mm -hmm. But seeing as there's no stakes to any of it, it's probably about time they kicked it up a notch. The detectives head back to Nayland's cottage where he announces they will be transported to the Himalayas in mere hours. <laughs> <laughs> Suddenly, a balloon inflates from out of the chimney and a periscope and engine controls drop from the ceiling like we're dealing with Carl Fredrickson all of a sudden. A captain's wheel rises from the floor and the balloon is emblazoned with the phrase the spirit of Wiltshire, which I have to assume is a reference to something else from the books or movies because the word Wiltshire is never said in this film. Is that where he lives? Maybe. I don't know. The cottage lifts off the ground, and as they're approaching Fu Manchu's place, Pete Williams from the FBI finds a small compartment in the kitchen, which Perkins informs him is called a priest's hole, purely to set up a joke later that yeah. isn't funny when it happens. Yeah, because Nalan gives Perkins the diamond to hide, and then he hides it in the priest's hole. They have this conversation, and then... Nalan immediately retrieves the diamond after it. Yeah, so there's no reason for it to have ever been in here. Fred takes a sip of his new Vitae in the lab, and it's no good. He shatters the unsatisfactory glass. What's wrong, my love? What's wrong? One of the ingredients is defective. Which undoubtedly held some of the other irreplaceable ingredients that he needed all of. Nalan's cottage lands near the palace, and Fu's men are there to fire on it with cannons. Nayland surrenders himself to Fu's men and they escort him in. Fu concludes that the London diamond was a phony and Nayland admits it was hidden in a priest's hole, to which Constable Rage replies, You dirty beast! Nayland, surrounded, surrenders the diamond to Fu Manchu. Obviously he brought it here specifically to give to him because all he had to do to defeat Fu was to not give it to him yeah. or even not admit which ingredient was swapped out. When the commissioner of Scotland Yard finds out 
that Nalan gave the diamond back to Fu Manchu, he really doesn't seem to care in the slightest and offers to cover for him in the paperwork, which shouldn't be necessary because the diamond was already reported stolen, and until now, he wouldn't have even known that Nalan had it. None of this makes any sense. Yeah. What was his motivation to giving him the diamond? Just to be like, here you go, buddy. Don't kill me. But you oh. came here with the diamond. Well, I, I think I think the reason that he brought the diamond was to exchange for the crown jewels. Like, cause they, cause, cause he, Fu Manchu didn't just take the diamond. He right. Took, he took all of them. And so Nayland, I guess, saw that as, as unacceptable. Okay. Well, that, it would have been nice to have that made clear it by would. some kind of It would have been nice. That's, or, that's or just maybe, a guess. Or yeah. maybe before you give him the diamond, make some sort of negotiation to get yeah. the crown jewels yeah. back and not just yeah. have it be a, <laughs> Does in good Fu faith. Does know that this means you're going <laughs> to give everything back? Cause he didn't say he would. Fu drinks from the corrected formula and is suddenly decades younger. I feel fantastic. He invites Nayland back to his office, and Rage offers gifts on Fu's behalf. Exact replicas of everything stolen, and presumably the actual artifacts of the rest right. of the crown jewels. So he's not even a bad guy, really. He just needed to steal these things so that he could stay alive. Right. And we're pretending like he's a supervillain. Right, uh, but we never bring up the fact that he is trying to take over the world again, do we? No. No. Or, or what he does... Why Why does he wait till he's really old to drink this elixir, like, on his deathbed? Yeah, why does he wait for someone to pour all the elixir out to start gathering ingredients? I feel like you would just gather them all up now. Always mm-hmm. have a backup, yeah. you know, set of diamonds and mummies on hand yeah. just in case. You shouldn't let it get past a half tank. <laughs> Fu offers Nealand a sip of his Vitae, but not before returning home so that they continue their cat and mouse game as worthy adversaries he tells nayland to rejoin the others where they can prepare to be wiped out nayland says wiped out and he goes and tells everybody he just said he's going to wipe us out and the detectives are worried for a brief moment until fu rises from the floor in an elvis costume and sings rock a foo confucius say this cat's the king the cops they tell you i ain't nice but fu knows how to fry that rice i've lived so long that i can't be wrong i rock you and i sing this song rock a foo rock a foo it's foo music rock a foo rock a foo it's new By wipe out, he means impress musically. I guess. Yeah, I guess because <laughs> That's he's living the end of our film. because he's living his dream of being on stage. Oh, maybe so. Maybe when he says "take over the world," he meant like, musically. Musically. Well, he he did express a desire to to move in that direction with his career. And his calling card and symbol is that piano. It's got a piano, like yeah. Yeah, we have to put these pieces together because it's not in the movie. <laughs> but yeah. Director Pierce Haggard uh, did not recognize much from this guy. Director Richard Quine, this was his last credit, even though it's not a credit. It's uncredited. He also directed Prisoner of Zenda, starring Peter Sellers. And their falling out happened because Peter Sellers didn't like the way that he was handling that movie in post and fired him from this movie before they even had the script ready. But Richard Quine also directed Strangers When We Met, starring Kirk Douglas and Kim Novak. Director John G. Avildsen is probably best known for directing Rocky, for which he earned an Oscar for Best Director. He'll also be directing The Formula for us later this year, and he later did Rocky V and the first three Karate Kid movies. David Lodge is just a personal friend of Peter Sellers who he brought in to direct when he couldn't direct. No official directing credits on his IMDb page, but he did appear with Sellers as Mac in The Return of the Pink Panther. And then we have uncredited writer uncredited director star peter sellers he obviously played fu manchu and nayland smith chance in being there was one of his last roles before this i think people wish that was his last movie because it was actually a really great role he's obviously inspector clouseau in the pink panther series he was captain mandrake president muffley and the titular dr strangelove in that film he was claire quilty and dr zempf in lolita for kubrick also while this is the last film Sellers worked on, his last credit was actually 1982's Trail of the Pink Panther, which was literally cobbled together with outtakes and unused scenes from other Pink Panther movies. Yikes. Yeah. 
That Sounds cannot awful. be good. <laughs> Writer Rudy Doctorman uh, did this and some Chips episodes. Ah, nice. Jim Maloney, uh, this was his only feature credit. The novel was from Sax Romare. He has credits dating back to 1920s The Yellow Claw. Most deal with Fu Manchu, Rummer's creation, but the first was about Mr. King, a different xenophobic villain. Helen Mirren was Alice Rage. She played another queen for us, Caesonia, in Caligula earlier this year. And she later won an Oscar for lead actress for The Queen, playing Queen Elizabeth II, the granddaughter of the queen she is doubling in this film. David Tomlinson was Sir Roger Avery. He was in Mary Poppins, Bedknobs and Broomsticks. He was in The First Love Bug. Yeah. And this was his final feature film performance. Sid Caesar was Joe Capone. He plays Coach Calhoun in Greases 1 and 2. He plays Melvin Crump in Mad, 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 Mad World. He was Chief Caveman in History of the World Part 1. It's Sid Caesar. Like yeah, he, he he's is, great. He is, you know, the show of shows. And he was also uh, the studio chief in Silent Movie. He's probably best known for the TV series Your Show of Shows and Caesar's Hour, but I will always think of him as the old man playing Kino in Vegas Vacation who finally hits the jackpot and then Alanis Morissette style suffers a fatal heart attack and as he's dying he tells Clark Griswold to take the ticket and collect the reward or in a very dark turn perhaps he just takes the ticket and says that that's what he said well because okay so the scene is a little weird because he's going like I won your money yeah I won your money and then he's like grasping his heart for a second and he's like collapsing and his eyes are like winking back and forth and then he whispers something in Clark's ear and then he says I think he said to take the ticket and uh Beverly D'Angelo is like he said to take the ticket like I don't believe you yeah and then he's like he nods and he winks at Clark and then he falls backward like he's pretending to be dead. But then immediately EMTs are there to confirm that this man is dead. Mm-hmm. So he's not pretending. I don't know if the winking was just another symptom of his heart attack <laughs> or what. But yeah, it's unclear whether Clark stole all this money from a dead guy. <laughs> Simon Williams was Robert Townsend. He plays Butto in Kinvig, which was a series. And he was also the prince in Jabberwocky. Steve Franken played Pete Williams. He was a technician in the original Westworld film. He plays Cardinal Colbert, or Colbert, in Angels and Demons. And uh, he plays Professor Graves in Munchie Strikes Back. Oh, there you go. Do you remember Munchie? No. That's the one that we just watched on the Shout Factory app. Oh, yes. The weird puppet <laughs> character. I do. There's a sequel it's to so that. so weird. Uh, it's ridiculous. Uh, John Sharp was Sir Newell's Thud. He played Dr. Ewan in the original Wicker Man. He was Doolin in Barry Lyndon, which seems funny to have a character named Doolin in a movie about Doolin. <laughs> He's also the Mater D in Top Secret. Yeah, so that was a movie. The problem is that it doesn't go as hard as it should into parody territory. Yeah. And so by forgetting to crowd it with clear jokes, it, it feels like just a bad attempt at a straight movie. Yeah, yeah. I, I feel the racism aside there could have been some things that could have made it a very salvageable something yeah i I really like the concept the core concept of like the detective and the villain who are so like like fiendishly like in love with how much they can foil each other yeah i almost Uh, got the impression that he brought him the diamond because he was like i don't want my friend to die yeah it's it's yeah it's kind of like that and it's and it's like yo here's this elixir We, we can fight forever if you want yeah uh and there's just like a mutual respect between the two yeah it, it is a fun a fun relationship between the two of them but for the most part nothing else in the film works do, do you believe that this is also some kind of like inspector gadget and dr claw type type like inspiration <laughs> maybe either way it's it's just uh it comes across as weird it doesn't come across as a comedy movie and it's crazy to me that this was like four years after murder by death yeah like it's not that long after and none of like peter sellers is non-stop hysterical in murder by death yeah. <laughs> every line he has in murder by death kills me and there's not one laugh out loud moment in this whole movie yeah i mean i did chuckle at the at the doctor of uh, veterinary medicine from indiana state university he didn't write murder by death though no it was neil Neil simon i feel like that is a huge part of it he wanted to capture that sort of feeling with this and i don't think he did yeah 
Is he a writer of other things? Did he write his other movies? I mean, Blake Edwards wrote the Pink Panther stuff. So. Oh, but Peter Sellers himself is yeah, not. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. He He's not responsible for the writing of his best remembered things. No, for sure. That Yeah. I don't know why he would have thought that he was the person to take the script and fix it. I mean, I know he wrote for television because I think he wrote for The Goon, whatever that show there, was. There called. are eight writing credits, but a lot of them is additional material, thoughts by. I don't know so it's like it's, it's his improv during yeah. the movies. Yeah, so he wasn't a writer. Yeah. I don't really understand why he thought well it was the it was the end of his career obviously so he had as much clout as he was ever going to have i guess that's not true he would have had more earlier well i can also see it as a as a case of look i know what kind of comedy you want from peter sellers and i know he did give you that comedy yeah i know what to do let me do it yeah but he did improvise a lot on dr strangelove as all three characters that he played so I, i know that that he was at one point sharp enough to put a joke together on the fly but i think the problem is when you're writing them down they have to be funny um and these weren't and even like just the character name of fu manchu is a little bit racist (laughs) yeah it definitely is and it's also it's funny because it literally became synonymous with that racist facial hair like that's called a fu manchu mustache it's named after a fake character wait that facial hair was actually named after this character yes that it wasn't the other way around. No, the, the the words Fu Manchu mustache are a reference to the character as he appeared in early films of this character. It's funny that it's called Fu Manchu, which is a okay. an American made but up character. But they didn't invent that facial hair for this movie. So it obviously has a name. Maybe it had a name before then. I suppose. I, I don't, don't know. know. But that also reminds me of, um, I took this art appreciation class at CSUN and uh, the teacher showed us a clip from an early Superman cartoon that was one of the like super racist episodes. Yeah. And uh, it was like Clark Kent went to visit some guy in an office and then as soon as he left his office, the guy closed his door and he like locked the door and unfurled a Japanese flag and started like praying to the Japanese flag in his office because it was about like espionage and this guy was a Japanese spy. And when he paused it, he said, now that's racist for a bunch of reasons but i want to try and break it down piece by piece can you tell me why uh this was the even the drawing of the character is racist who does who is this character drawn to look like (laughs) and it was clearly a charlie chan character for a japanese guy Mm -hmm. (laughs) and so i was like oh it's charlie chan and he was like okay and can you tell me why it would be racist to draw a japanese character like charlie chan i was like well everything about this character is racist and he said right but what is charlie chan's nationality and i was like well sydney toller was like german irish when he played him (laughs) and he was like no no no, that's a different racist problem (laughs) what i'm talking about is this is a chinese stereotype playing a japanese character (laughs) in this cartoon but um that just that made me laugh a lot (laughs) that uh they were just like whatever you know every every single asian stereotype we could just draw as any character and it's like like nobody cared so you have all those terrible like donald duck versus the japanese cartoons too it's ridiculous uh jess up or down oh it's a big down it was just missing a lot of you know structure and jokes (laughs) just in general it really wasn't good yeah i i'm also going down there's there's you're not missing out on anything if you skip this one it's a down for me uh it's you know, I love Peter Sellers, and I really wanted to enjoy this, um, at least just as as something. And you know, and again, like the final film of Peter Sellers and David Tomlinson, it's like okay, you know, this, this could have some good moments, and maybe it could have, but it didn't. Do we know where this is going on our lists? Anybody, Jess? Yeah, it's it's really low, and I feel bad about that, but it it is really bad. Yeah. Um, it is. Let's see. It is ninth from the bottom of my list. Okay. It is below uh, Helen Mirren's other, uh, you know, imitation of royalty to seduce a man of power. <laughs> Those are right uh, next to each other. Directed or produced by a... Pornographer. Pornographer. Yeah. So it's right underneath Caligula and right above Stunt Rock. So so Caligula has moved up on your list. It has. It's tenth from the bottom now. Oh, <laughs> there goodness. are really some Probably terrible movies great. this year. <laughs> anyway richard where's this going on your list um, i have this probably significantly higher um 
I mean, no, it, it's not probably. It is definitely significantly higher than Jesse's. <laughs> There's no way to know. <laughs> <laughs> it's not like we're keeping a tallied list of numbers. Um, I, I have this actually just uh, below Hunter and just above Little Dragons. Hunter and Little Dragons, okay. Yeah, I mean, because I really didn't care for Hunter all that much. Yeah. Um, but I still like, you know, eh, I might I might watch it again someday, and I might watch this again someday. But uh, that puts it at number 67. Okay. Um, this is pretty low on my list this is 14th from the bottom um it's just above can't stop the music and just below how to beat the high cost of living Uh, because that movie wasn't super funny but it made sense i think this one doesn't do that second part as well but i think that's everything for this one if you guys have any thoughts you'd like to share with us we are vintage video pod on twitter facebook instagram and letterboxd whereas i've said before you can find each of our full movie rankings for the year We can also be found at VintageVideoPodcast.com. Please consider rating us on iTunes to help people find the show. And if you take the time to leave us a review, we will thank you personally in an upcoming episode. If you're feeling especially generous, you can also support the show through Patreon.com slash VintageVideoPodcast. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you'll join us next time when we'll be discussing Xanadu, which IMDb describes like so. A struggling artist living in Los Angeles meets a girl who may hold the key to his happiness. That's pretty vague. It's like it's about as taboo. vague as the actual movie is. <laughs> it's like, all right, well, the words I can't say are muse, um, <laughs> roller skating, neon lights. <laughs> uh, yeah, we leave you now with the trailer for Xanadu. Open your eyes and hear the magic. Universal Pictures announces the most dazzling romantic musical fantasy in years. Xanadu. Starring Olivia Newton-John. Michael Beck. And Gene Kelly. Xanadu. It's a love story about a boy and girl from two very different worlds whom no one can keep apart. It's a spectacular entertainment that will transport you beyond your dreams. Xanadu. Where time stops and the magic never ends. Xanadu. 